Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, number 106. A proud member of the Dumbass Media Network, I'm your host, Brian. Joining me this evening, Mac. Good evening, everybody. And Ian. Manamana. And Terry. Hey, everybody. And of course, the dumbass himself. What is up, my brothers? <laughs> How are you, sir? I am doing pretty well. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Doing am right. I your brother, too? Do I get to be your brother, too, dumbass? Since it's a colo- of you do. isn't it a colloquialism? Is that right? So of course, right? Yeah, I'm not sexist. You can be my brother as well as everybody else. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, anybody got anything going on? It's fun. Well, I'm on vacation. I... So I'm doing real well. Well, then just be quiet. <laughs> when uh, when Tango says "Come on now," what he wants is to go out in the front row. Oh. So he'll get on my shoulder and go, "Come on, come on." <laughs> And I'm like, okay, well, come on. <laughs> All right. I heard from Hillbilly God's wife. Yeah, she, she, apparently there's a clarification here. We missed something. Yeah. So she listened to your last episode and noticed that there was some confusion about um, her provenance. So she wanted me to let you all know that um, uh, the inspiration for Hillbilly God's wife did come from Cognitive Dissonance podcast, Hillbilly God, who came first. And um, Hillbilly God's wife did first appear on Cognitive Dissonance. However, she is native to the amateur skeptics. Ah, see? All right. I'm glad that's all cleared up. I know and people she lives were losing in Providence. Sleep. In Providence. <laughs> I know people were losing sleep over that. So. Yeah. Well, and it's, it still stands. Bring it on, Cecil and Tom. Bring it on. Right? <laughs> I mean, if they, if, have... if they want her back, they got to they gotta come through us. I'm sure they're listening right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they are, right? I'm sure that they, they're closely scrutinizing what we have to say about them. They were just getting ready to sue, and then they heard the clarification, and now they've called off the lawyers. Oh, well, all right. That's probably best. <laughs> all right, well, I think it's time for Ian and Terry's Masturbation Moment. The Amateur Skeptics present Ian's Masturbation Moment, brought to you by the Dumbass Media Empire. The Dumbass Media Empire, bringing you content that touches people while they touch themselves. We get to talk about the vajayjay. Well, that is one insulting way to say it. I was just like, I was stunned by that. We, we can't say vagina on this show or vulva. <laughs> or vulva. No, no. We, I thought we were going with vajingo. We had to find the most crass ways to say it, of course, because, because you know, we don't, we don't want to get censored. Well, I, I think everyone here more or less has enjoyed the vagina, right? Maybe yes. One level or another. You know, it's something that I think that this whole crowd can come together and say that is something that is enjoyable, right? I, I would say though that some of us probably everyone, experience. You know, chime in and agree, or right? But some just of us. Me and no, hold on. Are, are you not My hearing me? My memory seems to indicate that yes, I did. Oh boy. No, I was going to say <laughs> that some of us experience the vagina differently than others, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, but we've all enjoyed the vagina uh, from one perspective or another. Absolutely. <laughs> so, of course, um, the, what we're going to deal with today is probably the biggest myth concerning the vagina. And that is the fact about the, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this. Um, the sinister doesn't sound quite right. The infamous Hyman. Dun, Hyman. Dun, dun. Isn't it Hyman? Hyman. Hyman? Yeah. Hyman. Isn't, isn't Hyman, yes. isn't, yeah, Hyman's your kid, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, this all started because I ran across this video. For your information, Hyman's don't break. Here's some Hyman. real talk. Hyman's, about. Hyman's don't break. Hyman, Hyman, right, Hyman, Hyman's, Hyman's your kid. <laughs> I have issues with pronunciations. <laughs> okay. It's how my mind's wired. Anyways, this was a very well done video from, um, Lacey Green. Who, um, yeah, Lacey, Lacey Green, she's uh, really good. I've seen some of her stuff before, actually. I'm surprised I haven't mentioned her in this segment before. Yeah, she's pretty awesome, isn't she? So anyways, in this, he more or less shows exactly how the hymen really is uh, compared to um, what we have somehow always been taught it to be. Well, what and, it, well wait, so what have we been taught it to be? Well, the, the way it's always been presented is, well, I, I've never heard it described. I've just heard that it is in the vagina and it breaks upon first intercourse. Right, but don't, the, the way that people talk about it, don't you think that it like is completely covering something? I always, well, uh, yeah, except for I always picture it had to have holes in it or something because fluid had to go through it. The, so it made when no I, sense to be a solid um, membrane. 
Can I just share some too much information for a second? Yeah, please. When, sure. when, when I was learning, when I was young and learning how to use tampons, and I had no idea about anything about my own body because we didn't talk about that stuff in my family, uh, I read the little tampon package insert, which had this little um, discussion about how you will not break your hymen, you will not lose your virginity, your hymen has an opening, you can insert a tampon, it's just fine. So that's how I knew. It was kind of like a membranous ring is what I thought, and that, um, you know, that there was obviously an opening for menstrual blood and tampons and whatnot. Okay. But that if a if a man ever broke it with his penis, that I would be forever um, forever ruined by that. Yeah. But no, why, how does that there, make like, any how does that make any sense really though? I mean, I mean, I know that the tampon may be smaller, but why why would the the tampon not break the hymen, but a penis would? Because right. it doesn't stretch. Well, I the idea is that tampons are typically smaller than an okay. adult male erect penis. Right. So, <laughs> so, but that's really the only real justification there. But it's, it doesn't cover the entire opening, right? It's it is like it's like a no, it, it, yeah. It doesn't there cover. There is tons of mythology about this membrane. Um, you know, this is this is the this is the body part that is worth gold and rubies in a in in dowry. Right. That if that, if that if it is gone, said woman is forever devalued and and soiled. Right, yeah, and, and, and that you must bleed on your marriage. Yeah, and bed. it's justified biblically that way. Even you know, you look in the Bible; it it tells you that as well. You know, the virginity is the most valuable thing a woman has. So there was a to... there was a period novel that I read once. Uh, a, you know, basically like a medieval times novel, where part of the uh, part of the action was that everybody thought that this woman had lost her virginity. So every one of her friends gave her a vial of chicken blood to sprinkle on the sheets after the after the night with her husband. The final right. straw was when he gave her a vial of chicken blood too, so she wouldn't <laughs> be embarrassed. And so she pours every vial of chicken blood out on the sheets and she says, There, do you think it's gonna look like you slept with a virgin in this bed? He says, No. <laughs> it looked like I sacrificed one. <laughs> Can I just say that her husband sounds like a keeper? <laughs> oh yeah, it, was, it, was, it actually turned out to be a pretty good book, and yes, he was a keeper. Okay, so you have Lacey Green's one. I highly recommend you watch it. It's entertaining, it's fun, and informative. Then I put up a link that basically is from a actual medical website, Palo Alto Medical Foundation. It gives exact same information she gave, but you know, saying this is medically sound information she gave, which to me was one of the first things you do when you see something like this. Like, okay, you know, let's make sure the medical stuff agrees with this, and not surprisingly, okay. it does. So, so that's great. So, what did she tell us about the hymen? Basically, it is instead of like I said, instead of being a membrane that's across the opening, it just lines it. It's tissue that lines the vagina. That's it. It's it's not. Going to be, you're not actually penetrating anything, you know, in uh, initial sex stuff. What you're doing, it, you know, th th they might be a little tight. I think is where some of this comes from. But it's um, just, you know, it, it leaves a fine opening that, when used right, allows the proper things in. So, but uh, so what happens to the hymen during sex? Well, basically, if sex is done right and, you know, the woman is relaxed, well lubricated, you know, basically enjoying herself and feels good about it, most likely nothing. It'll get rubbed and that's about it. If, however, and this is where I think the myth comes from, <coughs> sex is rough, um, the woman's not prepared and doesn't feel good, at, you know, and isn't made to, you know, be ready for it, that's when it can, um, because it, it's tight. You know, is made to be ready code for turned on and fucking wet and ready or what? Yes. <laughs> so, so does does arousal have anything to do with the elasticity of the hymen? It would appear to. It basically, yeah. and see, my, my looking at this, if you think about the way um, we view sex and the way we've understood sex to be viewed, women weren't supposed to enjoy sex. They were. It was supposed to be something they did to have babies, and that's it. Well, that's a Western and, thing. Yeah, but still, that means the attitude was you don't get the woman prepared, you don't help her relax, you know, and considering how weddings used to be, I mean, th there were times where this, the woman would meet her husband on their wedding day, wouldn't know the guy, um, would have all this stuff that would most likely stress her out, and here she has to lose her virginity after the stressful wedding, the stressful meeting the guy for the first time. He wasn't being taught to be kind to her. The whole idea was you knock her up and get a kid in her. Sure. So you figure sex was probably a lot rougher thing. You figure the bride was probably really stressed out and nervous, and um, more than likely the husband didn't do a thing to relax her beforehand. So more than likely she was tight, dry, and be you know it was fairly forced on her and fairly rough, which meant there's going to be some turn. In addition to that, she was inexperienced, and her husband was theoretically probably supposed to be experienced. Right. Sure. 
Well, so I guess the other thing, you know, question, does the age of the woman uh, affect the elasticity of the hymen? Um, actually, you were the one that put up the link, I think, that talked about that. Yes, I did. <laughs> this is that uh, This is that special barrier that the Republicans were talking about. <laughs> the hymen barrier, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, actually, so it does. So as um, estrogen will affect the elasticity of the hymen, so an older woman who has had more estrogen it will have a, a more elastic hymen. So it's more, it's less likely to break at that point. So age has a lot to do with it. A younger woman has a hymen that's more likely to break. Um, but the statistics bear, uh, vary anywhere from 52 to 57% of women never, never have a broken hymen. So it's actually more likely for your hymen to be intact than it is for it not to be intact in many cases. Um, there are certainly um, extenuating factors. But one of the problems um, with, with looking at the hymen, particularly for sexual abuse, is that the hymen may not break. So it's not actually – it's not a good way to um, – you know, the use of would look at a woman or a young a young woman and say – look at the hymen and say, oh, well, she has some sexually abused because the hymen's still there. And that isn't necessarily true. So there's a lot of reasons to not look at the hymen for virginity and for stuff like that. It's, it's not a good representation of those things. What I really liked about the article you threw up here was it talks about how um, you know, there's, there's a procedure to re-virginize women and yes. talking about what does that even do then if, if the truth about what the um, hymen is it's a wasted procedure because it's um you know it sounds like a scam to me it really does yeah like, it, yeah, it does re-virginize you when you, in reality you don't need it i, I did the read real it. scam yeah is that women yeah. think they need it I read a couple of other articles, uh, and they did touch on this as well. And in the um, in the other article that I read, said that you really can't repair it in to be the same as it would naturally. That there's no, that there's no good procedure to do that anyway. So there, so nobody's exactly sure what a hymenplasty really does. Uh, the, at least the articles that I read. I guess we could ask a, uh, a surgeon that does them and to find out what they're what? doing. It sounds like it makes money for dubious um, surgeons. It does sound like that, yes. That, that's kind of exactly what they made it out to sound like. But it's also that they have people who want this procedure, that yeah, our society produces women who want this. Right. And, and that fits with the um, scams we've looked at in the past. You know, people want certain reassurances, and they will pay a lot of money for, you know, scams. And this sounds like one of them, where the woman's like, oh, well, you know, I did some stupid stuff. I need to have something done that makes me feel like I've changed and am now more virtuous. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it sounds like. So it's, you know, one of those sad things that, you know, right. When, when the fact of the matter is, is that the hymen will actually probably repair itself. Even if it right. does get torn, um, you know, it, given time, it will, it will, it will revert back to where it was. And so if it, if it doesn't get stretched at all, eventually it will become that barrier again and have to be right. stretched out. So, so if a, a woman goes a, a long period of time without having sex, they should be aware of that so that, so that, you know, so that it will be more comfortable if, you know. And, that, and so if, if you've gone a long period of time without it, you, um, whenever you're hooked up again, you need the guy to do a lot more foreplay on what it meant. Right. Well, yep. And, and lubrication. Lube. Yes. Use the lube and not a dry <laughs> lube. I really think a dry lube is a, not a good, this is not a good application for a dry lube. <laughs> As an aside, I am trying this new lube on my bike. <laughs> it's an alcohol-based lube. Uh, what? Really? So it goes on pretty wet with alcohol, and the idea is that you, you um, it clean, it kind of cleans, and then leaves behind the alcohol evaporates, and it leaves behind the the lubricant, um, and then you just wipe it, and you wipe off the gunk, the dirt and gunk. I thought alcohol-based lubricant was usually used in bars in Texas. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But there's also a product. Called- all right. Anyway, so um, we're going to put some extra links in here to um, to Lacey Green's YouTube and Facebook page. She also has a, a Twitter account that I um, but uh, un- unfortunately she's she's not active on YouTube anymore, but her Facebook is still active. Um, and you can go to her site and learn um, basically her favorite vibrators and other really important information like that. Well, but she has some other really great videos. I mean, she has one of the best videos on on where the prostate is and what it is, and the same with the the G spot on where it is and what it is. She has some really good informational videos. She's, she's, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's fan, she's fantastic. Yeah. Regarding the hymen, uh, here's an interesting question. Um, could it be because, like, um, I guess the, this myth about uh, the hymen being uh, a huge sign of virginity, I mean, that might be one of the things. 
um, that we got because with men, there's no such um, sign that uh, men have uh, uh, not been uh, continue, might, might not might or might not be virgins. There's no sign about that. With women, it's made uh, so much easier because there's this you know not quite reliable sign, but people have been using it, and maybe that's one of the um, tools that makes it have has made it throughout history easier to uh, try to control women's sexuality. Well, yeah. this yeah. um, one of the articles that I read talked about how this idea of that you're losing something is is really kind of um, is pretty negative in the in the whole when the whole scheme of things because really what are you losing? Well, and it's it's I mentioned before that it was a monetized kind of thing too because you know essentially this this bride price for buying a virgin, right? Well, and some women are born without a hymen, and some women have a very small hymen. Yeah. So sometimes hymens break in other ways. Well, in, in fact, yeah, or I mean, any sort of stretching or physical or activity whatever. can break the hymen. Yeah, so not reliable, but yeah, I mean, this. But men, I mean, if when a man has sex, we say we're losing our virginity, but what does that really mean? There's there's no real loss there. In fact, if it's done right, there's a hell of a lot more gain than loss. Yeah. Yeah, no, Dumbass's point about controlling women's sexuality is spot on, I think. Yeah, once again, Western culture to the rescue. <laughs> All right, are we ready to talk about the secret life of dolphins? Sure. I ban you from birds, and we go straight to dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hit me and? with it. Well, I mean, tell, tell me tell me about these dolphins. All right, uh, the, the interesting thing here, and this is kind of making the rounds right now. Apparently, there was a BBC documentary that they slipped a they slipped a spy camera disguised as a sea turtle into a pod of dolphins. It wasn't actually intended to spy on them so much as it was intended to kind of evoke their curiosity and, and see if they would show off it. But what it captured was young dolphins passing around a pufferfish and apparently getting high on pufferfish toxin. Okay. Can you get high on pufferfish toxin? Uh, according to one of the other articles I pulled up, no, because it doesn't actually break the blood-brain barrier. You can get numb on it. But they, she said that there are. She said in the article that it shuts down nerve cells, but it doesn't cross into the brain. There are actually other fish in the sea. Yes, I said that. That would be better, better equipped to provide you with a hallucination or euphoric state. So it seems to me, though, that what if, what if you could numb the brain? What what would be the effect of that? It would sound a lot like a Pink Floyd song. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just not <laughs> sure. I mean, feel like referencing I'm referencing to, comfortably numb. Of I'm course. trying to imagine though, because I the being numb is not a feeling that that I enjoy. No, I I remember the last time I had dental work, and it was an incredibly uncomfortable feeling not having a full control over my mouth, you know, assuming that I have control over it right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I'm trying to imagine, I mean, if it, if they're passing this around with their mouth and they're trying to be fairly careful, right, is it is it possible that they are getting a, um, some sort of sensation from this that we wouldn't get? Because my understanding... possible. We don't know what kind of yeah. sensation the dolphins are getting. All we're going by here is the fact that they're passing this pufferfish back and forth and... As they pass the pufferfish, they appear to go into a trance-like state and stare at their reflections. I, I got a kick out of one of the articles asking, have you ever really, really looked at your dorsal fin? I mean, really looked at your dorsal fin. Could it be like catnip for, you know, catnip affects cats differently than it does humans? It does. And they mentioned a couple of other, um, they mentioned monkeys, hallucinating porcupines, and mushroom eating reindeer. Um, Let's see. Um, and there's a there's a um, a mammal that will chew on a centipede okay. in Madagascar. All right. So it's not unknown for animals to you know to light up a spliff in nature. Not at all. Um, look in Africa when fruit falls into they don't even ponds. Have to be in Colorado. Yeah. yeah exactly. In Africa when the fruit falls into these uh, these lakes and ferments, you know the animals will come to drink out of it to, and get drunk. Drunk and, right. and drunk elephants are notorious, a notorious problem. And they mention porcupines and gorillas and African boars eating the uh, iboga plant. Okay. And reindeer apparently munch on magic mushrooms. So animals wanting to get high isn't exactly unheard of. No. But the, but the big question that here is, is it just numbness or is there something else going on? 
and I and I think that it's very clear that there's absolutely no way we're ever going to really know what the dolphin's experience of it is. Well, does their behavior change post? Yeah, they, they spend a lot of time. Uh, the the dolphins spend a lot of time staring at their reflections. And at the McDonald's in, drive-through. In what? How are they seeing their reflections? Uh, in the surface of the water. Oh, okay. From the other side of the surface. Got it. Okay. Cool. You know, so it, it's it seems like there's it seems like there's a kind of an equal split among people saying, "Oh, this is great. Dolphins love to get stoned," and people saying the dolphins aren't actually getting stoned. Okay, it's it's mostly people saying, "Great, dolphins love to get stoned," and saying, you know, essentially using that as a as a thing for our own behavior. Right, we're anthropomorphizing. Mm-hmm. Correct. And we have no idea what's actually going on here. They're they're also talking about that how deadly the tetrodotoxin is for the pufferfish, but we don't know what the tetrodotoxin does in a, in a dolphin system. Right, and that yeah, because in us it it would just wipe us out. Yeah, we'd die. Yeah, don't and people die from sushi, sushi occasionally? No, yeah. well, no, they, I, they no, not pufferfish. Wait, is it ever served as sushi? I thought it was just fried. Is it? Is oh, it the, the pufferfish? It can be prepared as sushi by huh? a chef who is a chef who is uh, skilled in doing so. It's a, yeah, there's some kind yeah. of special training or yeah. something you have licensing or something you have to have. Right, you have to. Yep. Yeah, you have and to. And I presume to... you you've got to test your first. You got to test your first one yourself, and if you survive that, you're more likely not to kill somebody else. <laughs> yeah, well, they come and they collect the toxin afterwards too, right? They have to put it into a special containers, and it, it, they I come and pick so. it up. It's so dangerous. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, part of the other articles though that we've got here is talking about the fact that maybe flippers, maybe maybe uh, flipper is the most famous yeah. damn dolphin out there. But maybe dolphins are not really as smart as we think they are. Anyway, that a lot of what we are looking at right now is mythology created around dolphins by um, what's his name, John Lilly. Yeah, I was thinking I, he was he basically he basically did experiments with things like LSD on dolphins and hooked up electrons to them to find or electrodes to them to find out what their uh, what their responses are. What isn't wasn't his research frowned upon by the scientific community though? I mean it wasn't well regarded. No. And it looks like part of what he part of what he did also involved killing dolphins too. Hmm. That the dolphins were trying to communicate with people that were killing it, or that was what he believed. He became convinced that dolphins had a human-like faculty of speech. Right, and that's—I think—that's pretty much been disproven. Certainly, they have language, but it's not nearly as complicated as human language. Yeah, I think, don't they? Don't they normally make a habla espanol noise? Sorry, <sighs> there, there, there has been a string of articles in the last year and a half that that people are reevaluating. Well, at least the um, this this gentleman Gary, what was his name, Gary? Has been reevaluating the research, and and he is one of the proponents that that they're not really doing anything that that you know that is that much different than even even chickens do a lot of the same kind yeah. of behavior. This the chickens thing is is attributed to a guy by the name of Justin Gregg. Okay, different guy. Okay, and he's saying he's saying that chickens have the same kind of social complex, socially complex. Um, Socially complex struck, yeah, interactions, social, yeah. same kind of reactions, and I'm glad you mentioned chickens because I'm not allowed to. Oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, but he, well, he, <laughs> what he was saying was that stuff like um, like they'll notify each other when there's predators around, and of course, dolphins, mm-hmm. you know, ha- they have they have ways of doing that. So all the kinds of things that the behaviors that we attribute to to the dolphin being so intelligent, we see a lot in other animals, you know, uh, warning systems and other ways that they communicate with each other to let them know, you know, if there's danger or if there's a if there's a food source around and stuff like that, that they're just exhibiting behaviors that are, are common in the, the animal kingdom. But intelligence is not the only myth we've got about dolphins either. Well, and, and actually, it, let, let's let, I mean, there are people who disagree with the with this research is coming out and saying, listen, you got to take them as a whole. And as a whole, they still come out more intelligent. But they're certainly yeah. not as intelligent as humans. And part of that is the size of their brain, right? Their brain is yeah. the, is to, proportional to their to their size is the same as a, a what a chimpanzee, so it's point point nine percent the size. Or was that anyway? So it, they have a fairly big brain. But and some of the research now is saying, well, that's to keep it warm. The size is more uh, to keep it warm than it is about intelligence in this case. So okay, and, and that and that's well, controversial. Birds, that's birds controversial. have small brains and do things easily as intelligent as dolphins. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. 
But, um, you know, what I was saying about the intelligence is not the only myth about the dolphins. We, you know, we think of these, of these large, large creatures, large, incredibly strong creatures as being these cheerful, playful helpers of the sea. And, you know, really what you've got there is a large hypersexual predator, which is often bad tempered and unruly and wants what it wants at the moment that it wants it. And people swimming with dolphins have often been hurt doing so. Right. Well, we know that they will, that uh, male dolphins will rape a female dolphin. Yeah. That's, we know that. And we know that often, you know, these people who've been hurt by dolphins have been hurt in the hymen. Oh. Yes, I had to. <laughs> yeah. All right. What other, what other myths do we have about dolphins? Um, how much of it comes back to Flipper? Yeah, that's a really good point because that and wasn't that that was a TV show too? Didn't they have a TV show yeah. based on that dolphin? And you know, we did the article about the about the dolphins being trained to do underwater naval stuff. Dolphins and seals being trained to basically stop divers. But how much of that is? How much of that is actually? Gee, we need dolphins, and how much of that is just PR now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly, I, I think that dolphins can be trained to do certain tasks. Right. I mean, you can train a bird to do it, to perform a trick. A dolphin doing a task is not completely unrealistic. Yeah, absolutely. It's not unrealistic at all. You can train a dog to do a task. You can train a dolphin to do a task. Hell, if you want to train a spider to do a task, I saw something about a guy who trained spiders to react to air hmm. being blown at them. And it didn't take him long to do it. Okay. That's kind of cool. You can train a dead dog to do a trick, according to Pavlov. So it's not... <clears throat> It's not outside the realm of possibility at all. So, so what do you feel like? So, I mean, are are they onto something that that the that we are that we're over anthropomorphizing the dolphin and giving it too much credit for its intelligence? I think we over anthropomorphize a lot of animals, and dolphins are one of them. Absolutely. I think that we I think that if we need to deal with an animal, we need to deal with an animal on Sorry. its own terms, and not you know not try to pretend it's thinking like a human is. I think birds are highly intelligent, but in no in no way, shape, or form do I think that Tango thinks in the same motivations as I do. I know what his motivations are, and most of them involve food. Absolutely. Well, I think the, uh, regarding dolphins and other charismatic sea critters, um, they've come to sort of symbolize uh, taking care of our planet and good stewardship and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. anthrop anthropomorphizing the, those animals makes us feel really good about um, you know, taking care of the planet and, you know, being well, sustainable types that, of people. That's an interesting point. And because a lot of people want to get, want to basically declare dolphins, you know, give them human rights and, uh, and protect them that way. And certainly, I mean, there's something to be said for protecting the dolphins, but it, does it, how intelligent do they have to be for us to want to protect them? How yeah, but then you get into the whole. We have to be in order to want to protect them ourselves. Yeah. Well, then you get into the whole question about, well, like, it, it, it is it is kind of a, a thing, you know, like we've got the, the Disney version of animals is that they're basically, uh, in, in like any movie or show, they're basically um, people who can't talk is, is how they're uh, perceived as. And they, they know everything that's go, going on. I mean, they're not really like that. But, um, you know, and I, I guess maybe that uh, myth kind of serves a little bit of purpose to make us feel all fuzzy warm about the animals. But um, that there is a thing where... We want to think clear-headedly about this um, if we're making decisions about it and not, you know, get too weighed down with our romantic notions about what animals are. Parrot, did you ship off with a pilot, pirate crew toward Tortuga? Because I heard somebody <laughs> in the background go, yo, ho, ho. You want me to repeat that again? No. No, no, no. It's okay. We can actually hear you okay. It's just that the, there we can hear people in the background. But you're coming through clear, so it's fine. Yeah, you're, you're fine. All right. I, I, was just I, I might uh, re-record some segments for you that are a little too loud. Okay. That, that's fine. Um, but anyway, as far as yeah, what I, it was a it was a comedy routine from Dennis Leary. It, it was on his No Cure for Cancer album, I think. And he was talking about the problem is that we only want to save the cutes. You know, we save the otter because he cute does cute little things in his hands, but we consider a, pow, a cow to be baseball. Well, that's the point I was about to make is that yeah, we like how intelligent does an animal have to be before we stop eating it? You know. Like how far down the intelligence scale are we willing to go? It's going to be able to have to use, a, you know, modern tools, you know. Until it can use a drill, I, I think it'd be eaten. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tango happens to believe that chickens can be eaten, so, and but, he's a bird. You know, it's an so interesting. I'm going with his, his thought on this. Um, you know, there are more beetles in the world, you know, than, than any other type of animal. There are more types of beetles than, than anything else. And 
and you look at what Beatles do for us, it would be it would be more of a loss to lose Beatles than it would maybe to lose dolphins or some of these other animals. And, and so we don't think sure. about that. Those little animals are, have a have a much larger impact than maybe some of these big animals do. Well, and their point. biomass is so much their biomass is so much bigger too. I think that maybe it was in a Michael Pollan book that I read that the biomass of insects, um, you know, in terms of like the protein and stuff that we could get if we ate insects, is huge. So right, exactly, without completely yeah. wiping them out. Well, but the other thing is, is that man, we're still protecting the panda bear. Why? Let it go. They know kung fu. But I mean, pandas are cute, and there you go. That's the problem, right? They're, they're That's cute. another one of those myths. Pandas are not cute. Pandas are large, unreasonable predators up close. Same with koala bears. Koala bears are not cute. Koala bears have sharp, sharp freaking claws. I've seen the panda bears in the zoo in Washington D.C. I know how cute they are. You know what? But the, the problem with the panda bear is that they don't want to fuck and reproduce. So <laughs> screw them. <laughs> they're out of here. I mean, there, there is some, there is, I mean, at some, at some point you gotta think, you know, look at the resources that are going into, to protect the, you know, the panda bear. And it, it, you know, they, it, and getting them to reproduce is practically impossible. Have they tried Spanish fly? I, I don't know. I'm just asking. Um, there was another comedian I heard not, not too long ago who said that if animals could talk, we would all be vegetarians. He said, I think that if animals could talk, they would tell us what, what kind of other animals are tasty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 uh. They'd have us eating pufferfish. They tell us to go eat the pufferfish. Ah, <laughs> uh, save the beetle. All right. So moving on. All right. So uh, from one endangered species to another. From- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm figuring everyone probably knows the, this because it's been fairly big news this week, and it all started rather interestingly. But Fred Phelps, the creator of the Westboro Baptist Church, has died. At least that's what we're being told by his family. It all started when his one of his sons, and this his son that came out is one of the ones that he disowned. But he came out and said his father was dying, and explained that he was his father, the founder of the church, was basically excommunicated from the church because he was upset because of the way that the um council that was running the church now was treating his daughter the the one who basically has been the face of the church for a while the, uh, who's been out there screaming like crazy and if you ever see an interview with her it's not really an interview it's basically someone starts asking her questions and she starts going off on one bizarre screaming rant that um doesn't quite work because he won't let anyone else um come in and say anything else that that person um, is Shirley Phelps Roper yes anyway so apparently the New head of the church, some it was a committee, was treating her poorly. So her father got upset with them and was trying to get them to treat her nicely because he he obviously cares about how the church treats other people. In the church, so he, as other people in the church. Yeah, <laughs> only in the church. The rest of the world, you can tell to go to hell. But in the church, you better be nice to each other. So he got excommunicated and was on his deathbed. The church itself didn't want to comment, and none of his other children wouldn't comment. Well, then he passed away. And that's where the, I think the more interesting story comes from. Especially, um, you know, there's been a lot of jokes. Even Brian was talking about how everybody's going to put in a joke about Ding Dong, which is dead. I've right. seen that actually. A few no, times. yeah, but no, I actually wasn't going to put that in the podcast. I put it in the show notes, but yeah, the show I, notes. yeah, yeah, it, I, it's a joke that's out there. Yeah, it is. But the thing I love is one of the articles I put in there shows, um, the response that, that is happening. Okay, so the Westboro Baptist Church in general doesn't even seem to be phased by the loss of their founder. Nor so, should they. Um, Wait, but no, and nor should they be. Yeah. So they're still out there protesting like crazy every day. Um, and so they were protesting a cons- concert, right, out in yeah. um, Kansas. And the counter-protesters showed up, and their signs were, sorry for your loss, and live your life and be awesome. That was the counter protest. Nothing. I thought those in- were great. Yes. Well, the story those were nice. Like- it's it's just I- sad that the Westboro Baptist members don't seem to have the sensitivity to human emotions to understand what was actually being conveyed there. They yeah. did. Come One of on. the members actually said, "I don't even know what they mean by what they are saying," referring to the story. Sorry for your loss. And the the church itself is busy. I think um, trivializing this. I mean, the death of their founder you'd think would be something they'd take some time and mourn. But Brian's article here talking about um, will this 
um, bringing into the church. It actually have has it ends with them saying, "Well, we don't really um, worship the dead, and we're not going to make a big deal over um, his funeral. So there's going to be nothing for him to protest." Well, no, they said that there isn't going to be a funeral because that because they they don't worship the dead. Right. They, and so th- their goal is to protect the living. Now, when I say that they, they shouldn't be phased by his death, listen, he create, I mean, he, he it's, a, it's a lot of extended family, right? But they clearly have a, a governing council, right? That that's running things. Surely has been, has been the, the face of the church for years now. Not, not, not Fred Phelps, right? He's been the creator. I mean, there's some stuff with him on YouTube, but surely is far more prolific. So they, they really shouldn't, as, as far as the church is concerned, they shouldn't be that rocked by his passing because they are they seem to have a fairly solid base well i agree they should be rocked by it but still should be something where they mourn over and say okay we've lost we don't know that uh, they're not they do, nothing i see sounds like they care well they're not but well, but that's publicly I, yeah I get, okay but yeah, publicly they're uh, looking as big of assholes as ever well okay so they've excommunicated him and in other churches that means that the members can have no contact I don't think that does right. in this church. In this case, though, they just don't want him part of the governing board. I think is what it was. Yeah, it sounds it was, like a hostile takeover. It was more like it was more like being censored or censored. You know that. And this is all coming from Nathan Phelps, and we have no real way to verify what it, what he's saying. Um, you know, he and he may be a fairly reliable source, but it, there's no confirmation there, right? We know yeah. he's dead. That that's fairly well confirmed. But as far as the, how the church was reacting to him, that's kind of hearsay. It is. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems. The church itself hasn't come out to say anything about this, really. They're, they're almost like, eh. Why should know. they? Why should they respond to this? It's not part of their message. They have a message that they need to get out, right? What what happened? What happened to to Fred? They can they can deal with that personally, but that's not why should that be part of the church message? Does God hate fags any less because because Fred Phelps is dead? Yeah, well, and the article. It, it, I, I think it shows. It still reflects the basic attitude and the reason why they. I can't. I still haven't figured out why you would be attracted to them. I mean, they don't come off as being a caring group at all, despite all their claims over and over again. They come off as being the self-absorbed. Holier than thou, bunch of people that want to, you know, put everyone else down because they're not like them. But here's the thing, which it, is it, it really the biggest reason to pity that group okay. is that they are not they're not partaking in the great human experience as a whole. They are just relating to each other in in this this terrible little circle jerk of of tiny thoughts. Here's the thing, and though they actually the- they they actually believe their message. I think that they believe what they are saying. Right. And they're out there trying to spread God's message. That's the way that they see it. They're out there being righteous, you know, to, to spread the word. But they don't, they don't seem to understand that they, they, their reaction ruins, hurts their image even more somehow. I can't believe it's possible. But their image falls more and more when they actually come out and don't seem to have human emotions. And that's to me, this whole thing, that's what it feels like is, you know, we want to show you just how inhuman we really are. And they don't quite get that. They don't get the disconnect there. That, you know, the way they present themselves is not, you know, for the most part, they're not going to sway anyone's opinion. They're going to draw in assholes. And that's about it. Well, but and, I mean, most of this is extended family anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, for the and, most part. Although so, it's interesting to see such a, I, like I said, it sounds to me like a hostile takeover. You Because there are people maybe. outside that have come in. And I'm wondering if they didn't um, take on some, you know, leadership roles and more or less say, we won't push you out. They are very selective about who they let into their church. Not anybody can just join. You can go and maybe sit there, but you cannot join their search with uh, their church. They 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 are very um, yeah. selective. But it, it's not it, interesting enough. I've heard of other stories where there's been a hostile takeover of church. Um, sure, you know, new people kind of work their way in and slowly take over and suddenly push all the old people out. And that's to me what it sounds like happened here. Yeah, I, and, I don't know. I you know I'm not sure. Whether, I mean, it's so hard to tell what their inner workings are. And they've been very clear that they do not publicly discuss their inner workings. So, so I mean, you we can make assumptions all day long. I'm just right. not sure that, that it really amounts to anything. Regretfully, I don't agree with the article. I don't think um, oh, I don't it's either. the end of the church. I really don't. I, uh, um, the, the, although, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Because he, he hasn't been, you know, you even said he hasn't been that active. It's been his his daughter's been the face of it. We have this council leading it now. I think they can keep things going and keep being as obnoxious and asinine as they have been. No, so I, I regretfully 
not regretfully. What? Listen, I don't want these people to go away. I, the, the, I mean, they are a, a shining beacon of what is wrong with religion. <laughs> and I mean, and to have them there doing these things, other churches have to look at that and go, whoa, we do not want to be those people. So I'm not sure that, I mean, the, the having them there as, a, as kind of a counterbalance, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Okay, I'll give that to you. And and I don't agree with the article either. I don't. I think that they have a have a strong enough base, and because it is mostly family, that this church is not going anywhere. Not for a, not for a while. I mean, I mean, maybe as more people leave the church and and start to talk about it. There's a book called Banished about a woman that was uh, that that got kicked out of the church. Um, I haven't read the book. I just bought it. Um, so but so we're starting to see that you know those kinds of I, I guess really propaganda pieces start to come out. You know, against the church. They'll probably be going strong until, you know, until the point where they're so inbred that uh, the church just has one eye that they pass out, pass around between them. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, really, I, I, at least, you know, just it, it seemed it did seem to me like it was really speculative to uh, like not really based on anything to say that this could be the end for the church, uh, because there there's really no reason to believe that churches, uh, founders of churches die all the time and it doesn't happen to the church. They don't really give much of a reason for us to expect that uh, anything's going to really happen to it. No, I I completely agree that the, that this article is wrong. Especially since it looks I just, like he I have to say I have to say one thing about this whole Fred Phelps thing, which is that if they were really good evangelical Christians, they could bring him back. <laughs> and that is actually perfect. If Terry would like to take over, are, are we done with? Are, are we done with it? I I do want to say that I I'm really indifferent to his passing. I I don't I don't I don't yeah. you know I I don't I mean he certainly I wouldn't want him dead. I don't think dead or alive it it makes it makes that much. I don't think it changes the church, church's message right. at all. Well, that's why right with the protesters having that sign, you know, sorry for you, lost. That's the proper response. You know, we we don't really care, but you know, we we feel sorry for you for having lost someone that meant something to you. Sure, sure. Yeah. If I use him on future artwork, I am going to have to do him as a zombie, though. <laughs> oh, that that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. No. Okay. And yeah, I mean that. I just I I I wanted to make that point that I mean I I have no anger towards this church no. really at all I mean I don't like what they do but I think that as as far as I mean they're fairly nonviolent I mean you might say that that their message is violent right I mean it's it can be very hurtful and it probably has hurt a lot of people but I well, think I that it's far more honest than would like I mean I I wanted to compare it to the passing of um of uh Sylvia Brown. Who I thought. Yeah, who but I the th thing about Sylvia Brown, though, is that uh, she actually um, got people to give her money. You know, which was that, that if you're you you said to, to compare who does the most harm, but you know, like the guys at the Westboro Baptist Church, they're just more annoying than anything else. And that was kind of my point. And that and that's that's what I wanted to say about that. You, you made my point for me. I, I, I mean, I, I think that I, I don't. I think what they do is is awful, and I think that there is some harm there. But I think that there there are far more effective ways to do harm even than the Westboro Baptist Church. So uh, so now we can uh, move on to uh, to bring out your dead. All right. So this is the What the Fuck Are They Thinking segment. From the Freethinker Online dated March 10th, 2014, Tyler Johnson runs a mystery called The Dead Raising Team in the U.S. He claims to have brought 11 people back to life. He says he even persuaded the authorities in his state to issue him with an official photo card, which led him through, which lets him through police lines and car accident sites. So um, I'm surprised that I hadn't heard of these resurrections before if they raised 11 people from the dead. One would think that the dirt actually, if they had actually brought 11 people back to life, it would be all over the news. Nope, nada. So I looked for evidence of their resurrections, which is difficult to find, surprisingly. I scoured their website and Facebook pages, looked for YouTube videos. I did a search for resurrection on PubMed. Uh, I did not watch their documentary film because I didn't want to give them $10 of my money. But multiple sources uh, reviewing the film stated that the documentary about their resurrections does not actually show any resurrections at all. So, um, yeah, so these guys go to accident sites, they go to hospitals, and they pray over dead people and, and claim resurrection miracles. But there's no evidence of that. Way back in anthropology school, I learned that decomposition begins almost immediately after death, um, within minutes. The heart you stops. You've got like eight minutes left to, uh, you got like eight minutes to save the brain, basically. Yeah, so the heart stops, which is clinical death, and then, yeah, six to eight minutes later, in the absence of artificial respiration, brain death occurs. Um, and then once brain death occurs, that's the point of no return. Metabolism and cell function ceases. Um, the enzymes in the cells trigger autolysis, which is where your cells start to break apart and decompose, you, um, digest themselves. 
So this is why. (laughs) Just keep going. Just keep going. I'm trying. (laughs) This is why corpses are kept cold or otherwise preserved until burial. And also why there's a short time window for organ donations. Nothing about the dirt claim of resurrection makes any sort of biological sense at all. And in my search, I did find loads and loads and loads of undocumented, uncorroborated reenactments of purported resurrections. All kinds of people have made these uh, little films about how this resurrection happened. Um, I skimmed one a- anecdote of the DRT um, where they were trying to resurrect a man who had already been embalmed. Spoiler, they were unsuccessful. I also found a cardiologist who prayed for and also used a defibrillator on a cardiac patient who survived. <laughs> I, f- <laughs> I found well, an obviously anecdote. it's prayer there. Yeah, it's right? the prayer. <laughs> it's the prayer. Not the defibrillator. Well, you know, the thing, too, the thing about it, too, is that... Um, it's not unheard of for people to have been thought to be dead or flatlined or whatever and, and to have made a uh, recovery from that. So it, it's entirely possible that uh, you go in there, pray over somebody at the moment of death, and they'll recover. Coincidental. Yeah, yeah. I know. You're right. So, yeah, that's evidence. But they don't – They there's that's evidence that that occurs, and there's probably a biological reason for that. But that's – I don't think that's what these guys are claiming. Or if they are, they aren't providing any sort of credible, credible evidence of that. Um, I did find an anecdote of the dirt on the dirt fa- Facebook page about um, some guy took an overdose. They took an overdose victim to the hospital. Uh, the dirt prayed for him and he survived. Um, I think what's going on is a matter of semantics. The word for this is not resurrection. The actual word is resuscitation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so bullshit on the resurrection claims because nothing in the medical literature, biologically implausible, no credible evidence whatsoever, and what actually has been happening is resuscitation on the not quite dead. I find this entire business completely distasteful because it contributes to our society's appalling ignorance of science and particularly of medicine, and it gives grieving family members false hope. Um, if they really do, if these dudes really do have access to crime scenes and accidents, they're probably just getting in the way of the people who are trained to actually help or help the other victims. Um, and then they say they're, they say that they need more corpses to practice on. And it really is like that Monty Python, bring out your dead skit, except it's not funny. I I like uh, this, the quote from the article. It says, are they discouraged? Not at all, says Alan. Practice (laughs) makes perfect, said Donna. In this country, we don't often get to access dead bodies. So practice makes perfect. Practice, practice, practice. You'll become an expert resuscitator of the dead through prayer. (laughs) I got two things on this. I got two things. A, this is the next evolution of ghost hunting shows. Sure. And they're booking for a sci-fi series. And B, the one standing in the back, I thought that was Will Ferrell for a moment. A, a very young one. I looked one. closer, and it's not. So apparently this is not a joke. Actually, one more thing. If somebody is dead or at the point of death, usually there's a pretty damn good reason why they are dead or at the point of death. Does this resurrection address that reason for them to be dead or at the point of death? Or do they just kind of, you know, because if you bring somebody back from the dead, chances are they're going to die again. You know, the thing is that I always find kind of interesting about these things is that what's the point in, in them doing this in the first place? Because if God wanted them alive, wouldn't he just resurrect them himself? Why, why do, why does he need these yahoos to go and, you know, and, and what be a catalyst? Yeah. So it's logically inconsistent. An infallible God has let someone die on accident. Is that what, is that what this is? Apparently. And then, but yeah. God also doesn't have a cool t-shirt. <laughs> they, they do have nice black t-shirts. It's true. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. I just find it it's predatory, and I and I just really dislike that. I I don't know if they're going to do circus tricks. Maybe you know they'd be better off in the circus. I don't know. On a related note, um, Hillbilly God's wife is honing her skills as a faith healer. So look really, to that. yes. Well, I look forward to that. And and do do we know what should be healing? Yes, but she's not going to disclose it. Right oh, now. okay. All right. <laughs> You'll have well, to wait. You'll have to also, tune back uh, in. I, I'll be happy to, to, to sign the non disclosure if, uh, if Billy God <laughs> wants to give me a, you know, a preview. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I had put on here, um, I mean, there, um, I think at some point they made reference to, um, Pentecostal healings. And, I mean, in, in a lot of this is the same kind of trickery that we, you know, normally see with this kind of stuff, you know, where they're going out and, and they're basically convincing other people that these things are happening when they're not. It seems to be a lot of that going on. It's so curious to me. I don't, because there's no evidence of them having ever resurrected anybody. I'm curious about what they're calling resurrection. Like, how yeah, are they? I don't know. Yeah. 
All right, guys, what do we want to do next? Do we, do we want to... Um... Let's talk the waterboard thing. Okay, we can do that. So um, uh, where's his name? Melvin Morris, um, who is a... Um, he heads the um, Scientific Study of Consciousness, and he's written a book called Closer to the Light. Um, he's appeared on Oprah, Larry King. So he's, so he's, a, uh, he's a, a big deal in the cognitive research community. In fact, um, he was interviewed on Alex Sotiris' show, uh, number 172. Uh, do you guys know who Alex Sotiris is from Skeptico? Oh, yeah. Okay, and he um, and Alex Sotiris said about the guy that he is uh, he has more information and and you know has done more on the on this topic of consciousness than anybody else. He's the number one man in the field as far as Alex Sotiris is concerned. Well, isn't he sort of a uh, likely to embellish, believe in, yeah, or yeah, <laughs> yeah. or uh, be sucked into? Absolutely, moves, so. absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. he is not exactly a reliable source for any scientific information. Yeah. So, but this doctor's research is near-death experience, right? That's um, it's cognitive, or... it's cognitive studies and near-death experience. Oh. So he, it's kind of, it looks like, I mean, those two topics kind of go hand in hand. I mean, because a lot of these people that are doing the this life after death stuff are trying to find out where consciousness is coming from, right? Because it can't be the brain, right? Obviously, right. So he was um, uh, accused by his eleven-year-old uh, stepdaughter of of essentially waterboarding her. Uh, apparently happened um, four times over a two-year period. Now, I mean, why was the daughter uh, hiding bombs in populated areas and committing terrorist acts uh, that uh, he needed to force it out of her? Uh, there is uh, no evidence that she did those things. Um, that's well, pure no speculation. That would, well, that would I guess he didn't waterboard her enough then. Apparently, he didn't waterboard her enough. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't. I was. That's the one. That's that was my whole question. Is that what? Why was he waterboarding the um his you know, waterboarding this um, this girl. Uh, I, I had read on a couple of blogs that they thought that, you know, that he they're basically trying to induce a near-death experience. That never came up in the trial. I can't, there's nothing to suggest that that is actually happening. Um, it looks like it was just a punishment, that this gentleman was, was punishing his daughter. Abusing his daughter. Ab- well, okay, abusing. Yeah, I mean, it is, yeah, it's abuse, absolutely. Um, you it, know, it, it talks about going from spanking to the water thing. Right. And... Well, the interesting uh, thing God, about that, is, about that, that too is, that, I mean, I suppose if you hear about it, 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 it makes sense that uh, parents would move on to, to that people who believe in corporal punishment because it doesn't leave a mark. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's sure. Yeah, well, if you look at it, it talks about just how extreme it gets. I mean, the waterboarding was there, uh, the standing in the corner with arms outstretched for hours, confined her room where she had to use her toy box or closet as a toilet, and being deprived of food or forced fed until she vomited. Yeah, that's pretty severe. Yeah, and the thing is, I've seen this other with people, you know, we were just talking about, you know, the spanking is kind of a, a gateway to some of the more severe things. I've known people who have no problem with spanking. Uh, my wife worked at a really kind of not too good daycare way back when. I think it was the first daycare she worked at. And they, you know, believed in some pretty extreme stuff. And I, my understanding is one time this kid that wouldn't sit down and eat, they duct taped him to a chair and force fed him. Holy mackerel. So, and you hear stories like that. But I mean, that's bad. This is pretty it, extreme types of. Uh, of abuse that 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 they were going through in here, and and of course the mother wa- was I think she, I don't know if, if she's being tried separately. Yes, she was tried separately and found guilty of endangerment and assault. Because she didn't uh, she didn't intervene. Yes, right. she was found. Yeah, whatever it was, not endangerment and assault. Uh, it, the article do talk about how she was found guilty and probably a plea bargain statement to testify against him. It, it didn't say a plea bargain exactly, but it did say after she was found guilty, she came and testified against him, which suggests that she probably made a deal that said, okay, listen, you go easy on me and I'll help you get him down. Because uh, basically she apparently didn't do any of it, but she, it even says at the end of this article here that she pretty much just stayed away and, you know, let things happen without being really part of her daughter's life. And it's her daughter, not his. Right, it's his stepdaughter. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's to me, I find that even more disturbing that you, you know, stand away and let your own, some stranger basically come and abuse your child like that. So, it, yeah, it seems yeah. a little excessive, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, obviously, this wasn't a healthy relationship at all. So, I mean, so I he clearly, it doesn't look like he was, the, it looks like this was corporal punishment that it was, he wasn't trying to induce a, um, a, uh, 
uh, a near-death experience. But, uh, you know, I, I always like to come back to how does this affect his credibility? All the other research that he's done, if he if he is, you know, as Alex Atiris w- would like to claim, the, uh, you know, the, the number one guy in, the, in this field of cognition, but what does this do to his credibility? Well, you know, well, as much as I'd like to um, to say that uh, it um, that that it puts like a huge blot on his uh, 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 like if he's a big researcher or whatever, as, as much as I'd like to say that it puts a huge blot on that blot on that, I don't think it really does because unless you know it has direct bearing on what he's. I mean, it's it. You can make your own decisions about what kind of uh, guy you think he is and how that his personality uh, might affect that. But uh, I think uh, if we're going by his research, I think that has to be taken on its own merits. Sure. So he could be Dr. Mengele and still do good research. I think this is similar to the discussion we had about Brian Dunning, though, where like um, maybe if a guy is willing to abuse a child or whatever or behave appallingly in other areas of his life, can you then be sure that the research was conducted, you know, ethically and above board and with all of the, you know, the double blinding and all of that stuff that would make it credible? You know, the you... Yeah, that, that's the fundamental attribution error, though, that uh, saying that a, a way a person acts in one area of his or her life is necessarily uh, going to uh, uh, be the same, going to have the same uh, values and do the same things in another area of his life when research has shown that that's um, really uh, not true. Um, they, they, they've done uh, research, you know, basically uh, say, saying, okay, if a person is a certain way in one area of his life, will that go cross over to other areas? Like, if a, so they found, for example, that if a person uh, keeps his, his or her room or house messy, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is going to be a messy uh, researcher or teacher or whatever, like keep messy notes in his or her profession. So, sure, but if he has demonstrated his willingness to harm another human being and his research subjects are human beings, is there the possibility that he might be willing to harm research There's the possibility, but there's, have any of his research possi- subjects ever come forward and, and made similar claims that he's done anything there's to harm There's a possibility, and maybe that's something to look out for, but I, I, you, you can't really say that. Uh, the way a person acts in one area of his life is going to necessarily influence the way he acts in another area of his life. It's basically it, it's uh, research has shown that um, often these kind of things are not connected, and that other re- um, cognitive research has shown similar things about uh, essentially how people can um, uh, categorize their mind. What, what's the word they use? Uh, they, they basically wall off different areas of their mind. Yeah. Compartmentalize, um, yeah. Compartmentalize, that's the word. They compartmentalize their mind, and so in different situations, they may behave in very different ways. So I, I, to me, the Brian Dunning thing is a little bit different because on one hand, you know, Brian Dunning was telling us how, you know, about scams and how to avoid them. And uh, at the same time, on, on the other hand, he was uh, he was scamming us. Sure. So right. he, whereas this guy, I, I, I would like to know, though, this it, it still seems to be a disproportionate escalation to me. I, I, I you know, forget the, the fact abuse, that it's abuse. Yeah. yeah, forget the fact that it's abuse. It seems like somebody who went way off the damn deep end and did something crazy. I would like to know for my own self what precipitated him doing something that crazy. Well, one question I asked early too was um, before we started recording was, does he still get to be a doctor after this? And I guess to follow that up, does he still get to be a doctor who works with children after this? Because maybe he can compartmentalize that it's okay to abuse this one child and I'm not going to abuse my patient children. Yeah, that's a, I don't know. He'll, they'll let difficult. him work in the prison infirmary. <laughs> well, he at this <laughs> point, he doesn't have a medical license, right? It has been suspended, um, not revoked yet. But I, 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 I'm having trouble with the idea that you would give somebody that you know to be an abuser, um, give them back their medical license. Whether or not it means that they can be a good doctor, I think that there is an ethical issue there. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, I, would, I would tend to think that there's an ethical issue too, but you know, we are not the we're not the ones who make the final arbitration on this. Well, okay, but we are, and and here's how: I would not take my kid to him. Would you know oh, though? Very good. How guy. would you know? Well, I know now because it's because it's everywhere. It's in the news, right? right? So, yeah, but he comes out of jail in 10 years and you're a new parent and you don't, I mean, you know, I guess you probably Google him because that's what I do. But And he probably won't have that crazy Ted Kaczynski beard anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly we, we can, you know, vote with our dollars, but I think, but I don't know how this works. You know, I mean, I don't know. 
I think he should lose his medical license, quite frankly. Even if he's a really good doctor, though, is yeah. the other question yeah. to speak to Demas's point. Well, does it does it matter? He's he. I mean, he's a known abuser. Yeah, but how does that impact his ability to be a good doctor? <sighs> See, but I think that we we can talk about what is you know about compartmentalizing and 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 such. But the fact of the matter is, is that as humans, we have we have an emotional reaction to these things that. That it doesn't matter whether if technically he can be a good doctor or not. My emotional reaction to this will, will trump that, whether I like it or not. Yeah, yeah, mine too. So, I would never take so my kid to this guy. Once again, we're talking about what is logically true and what is emotionally true. And the emotional truth of this is that he's not trustworthy. And it's the same with Brian Dunning. My emotional reaction to him is he's not trustworthy. Not nearly as bad as this guy, right? But still. And 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 see and and like you say that there's a level there, right? I I would consider Brian Dunning more trustful than than this guy because you know it, it's a purely emotional reaction. But children weren't physically harmed in the Brian Dunning situation. No, that we know no, exactly. Of, right? It was so. you know it was eBay, you know, <laughs> right? Right. It's and but those kinds of things um, affect us in non-logical ways. Yeah, I'm personally willing to give Brian Dunning a little more slack. I mean, I, I think people make mistakes, and I, I don't think, you know, anything he did really had anything to do with skepticism. So um, I personally feel fine with with him still. But, you know, if you do have strong feelings about that, I can I can see how that would uh, affect your opinion of the man and make you, like, not want to uh, listen to him anymore. And um, that's perfectly fine. I mean, you can't stop the way you feel. So, uh, We're, it's yeah. A, but, uh, it, it's a harsh um, comparison, right? Because it, it there really isn't much of a comparison there. I, I I think we're just using him as a foil in this case. It's not comparable. Yeah, I agree. With I that. was going more with an epe on him, but <laughs> right. So I, but I, I guess my the point I want to make is that you know, dumbass, you're talking about the logical, you know, portions of this that that he can compartmentalize and probably still be a good doctor. I, but I, but there's an emotional side to this. I mean, dumbass, would you take your kids to this doctor? With Sorry, what was that? Would you take your kids to see this doctor, knowing what you know now? To to see which doctor? Uh, to see uh, Melvin um, Morris. He he's a pediatrician. The, the guy who bought her. Oh, the the guy the waterboard. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I I don't. I wouldn't. Uh... Uh, go see him regardless because I just uh, didn't care for his message. Oh, and and that's fine too, right? Um. So yeah. So there, there's those kinds of things that uh, affect the way that we feel about this guy. Yeah, pretty much. So um, yeah, yeah. It, it's you know, um, I think uh, you, you gotta really separate uh, the way you feel about somebody uh, versus you know whether you think that person is good at what he or she does. I mean, though they're two different things, and they both can affect whether you want to uh, go and uh, support that person through uh, seeing them or buying their products or whatever. But um. You know, it's two different things, and I think if you can you can recognize that they're two different things, and uh, you can work it out that way. I, it's sometimes I think though it's easier for me to logically recognize the separation than it is for me to emotionally recognize the separation. Right. Well, that's one problem with a lot of the stuff we talk about is we are creatures of emotion, and more often than not, emotion does dominate our thinking for logic. Well, we see that with Ken Ham. Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly, he said that whether or not any of this other stuff is true, he would rather be wrong and still, you know, follow that that this wrong message, you know, that that he finds in this book. He would because that's the word of that's what that's what Jesus said. So true or not, that's what he is going to believe. That's an emotional right. reaction, not a logical one. Right. So, all right. Do we want to talk about uh, um, body positive woman? I sure could. Let, let's do that and and end with that piece. It's a, it's okay. it's definitely. Uh, much nicer than the one we just did. Than the waterboarding guy. Yeah, that's right. So it's way nicer than waterboarding, right? So there's no waterboarding children, although there is abuse in this too. Well, the, okay. Um, yeah, there is. The, so this is in the Victory for Common Sense section. 23-year-old Harnan Kaur was poly, has polycystic ovary syndrome, which results in excess facial hair. She has a full and lush beard. Hair started growing on her face at age 11, and she had endured ridicule and bullying to the point that she had considered suicide. As an aside, the bullying sort of speaks to transphobia and the discomfort about non-binary genders that Kimberly talked about on the podcast uh, a while ago. Um, at age 16, Harnam was baptized Sikh and stopped cutting her hair and shaving her beard in keeping with the religious edicts. Um, she is so much happier and so much more positive. She told interviewers, this is me. This is who I am. It's my inner beauty. It's my outer beauty. It's my oneness. It's my wholeness. I'm different and I've learned to accept it fully. 
So I just want to say, rock on, sister. Well, not only that, I, I have beard envy. I cannot grow this nice a beard. Holy mackerel. Well, and I'm always bashing religion, but here's a case where, you know, it had a really positive impact on this woman. Sure. But I, I, how do other people in her community view this, though? Well, that's not the point, though. Well, okay. As, as, as to how other people view it, that's not the point. How she views herself is really what the point is. Yeah, no, I, right. I think that's... And she's happy with the way she yeah. is. So who cares what other people, you know? But then yeah. she she's this is a very strong person to be able to do that. Oh, I am. Oddly enough, while I don't find facial hair women to be attractive, she's not unattractive. You look at the pictures. It's know, the her personality, hair, though. Yeah. You know, yeah, look at the image of her right here. If you don't start the video, she doesn't look like an unattractive person. Sure. Well, no. and I, I think it has to do with how she carries herself and how she yep. presents herself and how she walks confidently down a public street, even though people are staring at her. I think that's attractive. Yeah. Uh, I'm so well, impressed. I could, I could never do that. You couldn't? You don't think you could rock that beard? No, I'm, yeah, no. I, well, no, I don't, I think that, uh. I admire her because I want to be more like her and not obsess about whether I have a stray eyebrow hair or whether I have a lump or a bump somewhere that I'm not supposed to or, you know, I obsess about all that kind of stuff and I wish I was more like her. But one thing I've noticed um, in movies and stuff, I often find the one more attractive who's not necessarily your typical model, but the one who has a, a better smile, a better attitude, a better feel all about her. You know, I, I'm like Cindy Crawford. I never understood why that was one so many guys were drawn to because she didn't do it for me. I didn't feel the a certain way about her. The way she held herself was almost arrogant. And that turns me off. While someone who feels more comfortable has always drawn me in. Hmm. And, you know, you can see that in this woman's smile. She does seem very comfortable, which is a attractive thing. All right. Anything else, guys? Okay. I think I'm ready to wrap this one. Excellent. Say goodnight, everybody. Goodnight, everybody. Good night. Well, if you've made it this far, that's an hour of your time you're never getting back. But the amateur skeptics appreciate you giving that hour to us. If you'd like to tell us how you felt about spending that hour with us, let us know at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. You could always roast us in a voicemail at 720-295-7785. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons share-alike, no-derivatives, 3.5 license. So, hand it to an unsuspecting friend, but please, just don't change the content. Intro music by Peter Cannell. Find more of Peter's music at soundcloud.com forward slash P-K-A-N-O-L. Exit music by OFM. Find more of their music at myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. Artwork for the Amateur Skeptics by Sean Smith Ford. Copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture.